0: Scripture for this morning is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Let us pray. Our God, in the midst of our doubt of your spoken word and our rejection of your authority in order that we might grab authority for ourselves, in the midst of that, your grace, which finds its perfect expression in Jesus, is already in evidence as your word of judgment is spoken in the Garden of Eden when you spoke a word of salvation for a people who will one day inherit your kingdom. May this reality, as sure as your spoken word, open our eyes to you and your purposes
1: this day. Amen. I do ask that you would have accepted the invitation and turned to Genesis chapter 3. We have been expressing and sharing the storyline of the Bible. The Bible is about the person and purpose of God, what God is choosing to do. In the platform of creation to bring forth his glory and to redeem for himself a people who will worship him forever. We considered the story's villain. And that from the beginning God had somehow in the text showed us that sin was going to be present. And it was my desire after last week's study for you to feel worse than when you came. For you to enter into the story and to realize that the condition in which we find ourselves apart from God, is hopeless. And we as a people are helpless to change our condition. Something must happen. We are continuing to build, I trust, in our anticipation of those and of the one who is to come in the story of God. And that's my desire, that we as a people would enter into the story, that we would realize that our condition apart from God is completely and utterly helpless and hopeless. Perhaps you have watched the news and you have seen on television the recent events concerning the nativity and the posting of certain signs by the Freedom From Religion Foundation. But recently the news spoke of atheists placing a sign criticizing Christianity alongside a nativity scene in the legislative building in Olympia, Washington. The sign was posted by the Freedom From Religion Foundation. One spokesperson noted, the atheist message was never intended to attack anyone. It reads as follows, "At this season of the winter solace may reason prevail. There are no gods. Why would we take offense at that? No devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only our natural world. Religion is but myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. It is the same ideology that has president the Human Manifesto number 2 written in 1973. I have shared this with you, but it's good to be reminded that there are two types of people in our world. There are those in Adam, and there are those in Christ. There are those who are unbelievers, there are those who are Believers. They write, as in 1933, humanists still believe that traditional theism, that which you and I embrace, especially faith in the prayer hearing God, assumed to live and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them, is an unproved and outmoded faith. Salvationism, that which you and I embrace by faith, salvationism based on mere affirmation, still appears as harmful. "'Diverting people with false hopes of heaven hereafter. "'Reasonable minds look to other means for survival. "'We reject all religious ideology or moral codes "'that denigrate the individual, suppress freedom, "'dull intellect, dehumanize personality.'" We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. While there is much that we do not know, humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. Promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusions and harmful. Both of these statements are expressions and echoes from the garden. This is exactly what Adam and Eve were thinking when they expressed their will against that of God's. They are both utterances from Adam. And whether you and I are avowed atheists, which I don't believe we are, or practicing theists, which hopefully and I trust we are, everyone recognizes the presence of evil. And there are only two options to the problem. Either we can fix the problem or God must intervene. The story of God tells us that He will write into His story a hero. And this morning we will consider the text of Scripture concerning the story's hero foretold. He has not yet arrived. And that's what I want us to enter into as His people. This idea of anticipation, of expectancy, and to see what God was doing throughout the Hebrew Scripture, the Old Testament. Sin does indeed have a limited shelf life. The fall into sin was not something unforeseen, and God's response to sin was not simply a reaction. Both the villain and the hero are a part of the storyline of God. In our last study, we left off by simply noting how from the very beginning, God planned a deliverer and deliverance. From the very beginning, God planned a deliverer and deliverance. Two passages were cited First, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the text that Mark read for us, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. First statement in Scripture, introducing to the situation a deliverer. And then, in verse 21, beginning with verse 7, then noting verse 21, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is man's attempt to answer the shame, the fear, and the guilt that they felt. And their attempts were woefully inadequate. Their inability to resolve the problem was noted. God's response, he introduces... The deliverer in chapter 3, verse 15. Now he provides deliverance. The Lord God, verse 21, chapter 3, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God provides immediate deliverance to the situation at hand. It is my desire this morning that we would expand on the ideas that are introduced in chapter 3, verses 15 and verse 21. Last week we were left with this emptiness. The fact that we, in and of ourselves, have rebelled against God. We chose something other than God. And as a consequence of that choice, we died. We were filled and are filled with shame. We are filled with guilt. We are filled with fear. How do we respond to that condition? In chapter 3, verse 15, we have the very first prophecy. Of the coming deliverer. At this point, the Messiah is not seen as a savior for the Jewish people. They are not yet in view, but as a victor over the enemy of mankind, Satan, the serpent. Man, in his darkest hour, condemned by the greatest of failures, first is approached by God. And against the dark backdrop of mankind's sin is laid the presence of God's hope. In the midst of the fall, God gives us word of a deliverer and deliverance. From the beginning, God wrote into the story the presence of a deliverer. This has been his intent all along. God will show himself mighty to save. And no matter how we view the unfolding of events, God always provides a way of escape. He is always mighty to save. In our failure to fully grasp the seriousness of our fallen condition, we have deceived ourselves in believing that we can do it apart from God. This self-will, this self-rule has led us and will continue to lead us to ruin. Our only hope is God. Now, I recognize that public speakers have a tendency to exaggerate. I believe that this study is without exaggeration and that our present study could occupy the subject matter for a lifetime. And we would still be limited in what we see. The entire Old Testament is a type or shadow of something that is coming, of someone who is coming. It is causing us to realize that God is going to provide a final answer to sin's existence. He is going to provide a deliverer He gives us prophecies, He gives us pronouncements, He gives us types, and He gives us shadows. And all of them is pointing us to the story's hero's arrival. And we'll see that next week. But now we still live with that element of anticipation, that element of expectancy. And if we were to simply invest ourselves in looking at the types and the shadows and looking at the expectancy and anticipation, it would indeed occupy our lives. This morning, I hope to consider only nine of these ideas as they are present in the text. And we are going to begin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 reads as follows, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you. The seed of the woman shall bruise you on the head, primary. And you shall bruise him on the heel, secondary. The great pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in speaking on this text, makes the following comment. This is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the face of the earth. The first, it was memorable discourse indeed with Jehovah himself for the preacher and the whole human race and the prince of darkness for the audience, the serpent, Adam and Eve, and God delivers the first gospel message. And it is indeed worthy of our heartiest attention. But from the very beginning, God promised that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent in the midst of this fallen condition, God introduces hope. God introduces help. Here, indeed, is a blessed promise that lies like a pearl in a shell, and God will work from that a blessing, for within that context, Jesus, our Savior, is foretold. It is interesting in the description that we have in verse 15 that the person is to come by the woman and by her alone without the concurrence of man. Therefore, the address is not to Adam and Eve, but to Eve alone. And it was in consequence of this purpose of God that Jesus Christ would indeed be born of a virgin. This and this alone is what is implied in the promise of the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent I find this so fascinating. We know from Luke chapter 24, and we'll note this next week, but inside the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, according to our sequence of the canon, from Genesis to Malachi, God placed in the text types and shadows. He is causing us to see that more is to come, but we are living with expectancy. We are living with anticipation. In this study, it is my desire that we protect ourselves from jumping too far ahead of the revelation. At this point, if we were in the garden with Adam and Eve, we would have felt the shame, we would have felt the guilt, we would have felt the fear, we would feel the hopelessness and the helplessness. And then God, in the midst of that, gives this word of a future deliverer that the problem will indeed be solved. And he introduces for us this element of hope, this element of help. And it's my desire that we would enter into the story, that we would feel what they initially felt. This text simply tells us that a conflict will transpire between the seed of the woman and that of the serpent. Therein lies a promise of future justice and grace against the present debacle caused by mankind. Without giving us too much release, I want us to all turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 20. You're going to keep your hand in Genesis 3, but turn with me to Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The idea that we find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, will find fruition. And we will look at that next week. However, today, as we consider Genesis 3.15, as we enter into the story, as we feel the shame, as we feel the guilt, as we feel the fear, God introduces hope. And notice what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And Paul picks up the thought contained in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he makes this statement as he concludes the great letter of Romans. Verse 20, The God of peace The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He picks up the statement in Genesis 3.15. That is in the forefront of Paul's theology. There is a deliverer who is coming, who will provide an absolute and eternal deliverance. And we will consider the fullness of Genesis 3.15. However, what we want to note, turning back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what we want to note is that from the very beginning of God's story, He introduces into the story a deliverer. But not only does He introduce a deliverer, but He provides immediate deliverance. Look with me now at verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and And his wife, and he clothed them. He made garments. He made garments. He took the initiative. He provided for them clothing, and he clothed them. Why did he clothe them? Because what they did was woefully inadequate. There was nothing that they could do to cover their shame, their fear, and their guilt. God had to act, and God acted. So he introduces immediately this element of hope of a future deliverer, but then he provides immediate deliverance. Think about what happened in this moment Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. Adam would not have thought, well, let me kill an animal and take from that animal skins. That is not what Adam would have thought. Adam did what would have come naturally. Pull a few leaves off the trees and cover his nakedness in an attempt to cover his shame, his fear, and his guilt. God did what Adam would not have expected. Remember how in vain our first parents attempted to cover their shame, their guilt, and their fear? Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all of our righteous works are as filthy rags. The attempt that Adam and Eve made to cover their nakedness was an affront to God. It was nothing but a filthy rag. There is nothing we can do to undo what was done. There was nothing we could do to undo what was done. Our depravity is so great that nothing short of God can undo what was done. God had to introduce hope. God had to introduce help. As we look at chapter 3, verse 21 of the book of Genesis, there are five ideas that I simply want to note. In this one verse, we see an established limitation. What man did was inadequate and only God could undo what was done. Our depravity is so great and our inability so vast that we can never undo what has been done. Not only is there an established limitation, but there was an innocent victim. The animal that was sacrificed did nothing to deserve death. The animal that was sacrificed did nothing to deserve death. And again, remember, what is God writing into the story? The hero. And in all of this, the hero is being foretold. They don't have a name yet. They don't have a person yet. But this is what is being communicated in this one act. That what I do, independent of God, is woefully inadequate and incapable of undoing what was done. And an innocent victim will have to die. Thirdly, it will be a blood sacrifice. When God took the animal, it was sacrificed. And the animal gave his life for Adam and Eve. When the animal was offered in sacrifice, its blood was shed. From the beginning, from the beginning, God's pattern was established. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Fourthly, a substitution. The animal sacrifice took the place of the guilty party. That animal died in behalf of others. All of this is in chapter 3, verse 21. And what this is, is but a shadow. It's but a type. It's a street sign. And that street sign, when read properly, is going to point us to our destination. And then finally, what is interesting is that Adam and Eve, living with shame, living with fear, living with guilt, unable and incapable of undoing what was done, God steps in and offers up an innocent victim, a blood sacrifice. He offers up an animal in place of them. And the offering he offered proved acceptable. The offering offered, appeased, it placated, it satisfied the wrath of God against Adam and Eve. It stopped it. But the animal proved an acceptable offering. God accepted the blood sacrifice of the innocent offering in order that the sin of Adam and Eve could be forgiven. This is what we see. In verse 15, this is what we see in verse 21. God, from the very front, from the very beginning of the story, writes into the story hope and help. He writes into the story a deliverer and a deliverance. Now, as we expand the story, and again, I believe that we could study this for the rest of our days. The signs, the shadows, the types in the Old Testament and how they all point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But as we expand the study beyond chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis, we come to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And please turn there with me for this third idea, this third type, this third shadow. Another statement by God. God, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, makes the statement to Abraham. And remember that God has been providing in language and in illustration a deliverer and deliverance. And that deliverer is starting to be narrowed down. He goes from the mass of humanity in what we call primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, to patriarchal history with the calling of Abraham from the Earl of Chalde. God begins to zero in, as it were. And He begins to help us understand who this deliverer is going to be. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The deliverer and deliverance is going to come through a specific bloodline, and it is going to be Abrahamic in nature. And we know, based on our knowledge of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is going to have multiple offspring, and one of those offspring will be named Judah. And through Judah, this deliverer will come. But I want us to note Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, to simply see how the New Testament picks up this idea that is given to us in Genesis chapter 12. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that God would provide deliverance for the Gentiles by faith. preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Through Abraham will come the seed of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent. God continues to give us these shadows, these types. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. But God promises to Abraham a seed through which the worlds would be blessed. God continues to cultivate within His people the air of expectancy, the air of anticipation. I have immediate deliverance. But something more is coming. The fourth idea found in Genesis chapter 22, a very familiar story where God tells Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, and Abraham responds in faith. And sometimes we fail in our understanding of these passages, but I do believe that what we have in Genesis 22, verse 8, is a shadow. God is continuing to cultivate within His people the idea that a deliverer and deliverance is coming and that deliverer and deliverance will come from God. It will not come from within us. We can never undo what was done. Our shame, our fear, our guilt will never be covered by our ability. It will be done by God. And we know that Abraham responds in faith to God's direction, And he takes his son Isaac. He has fire and he has wood. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8. And Abraham said, God, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Look at verse 13. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, remember that Abraham by faith was responding in the slaying of his son Isaac. And the angel of God stays his hand and says, Do not do what you are about to do. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. In Genesis 22, 8, when Abraham says to his son Isaac, My son, God will provide for himself an offering. He will provide for himself a lamb. Abraham spoke by faith. But God was giving us another sign. He is showing us that God will provide a lamb. Look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Again, this idea of a deliverer and deliverance, God continues to narrow it down to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Jacob's children, to Judah specifically. In Genesis 49, verse 10, it says, The scepter, the lawgiver, the one who. Reigns and rules shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God continues to narrow the promise of a future deliverer and is coming closer and closer and closer. Numbers 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And then Isaiah 9, verses 6 and following, a very familiar passage. The prophet Isaiah prophesies of this future deliverer, this future ruler, this future king who will save his people from their sins. This is what they lived with. They knew the satisfaction of having sins forgiven, but they knew that something more was to come. And God kept giving to the nation these street signs, these prophecies, these types, these shadows, calling them to be expecting something more. Something more is coming. God is putting into play This great deliverer and the deliverance. He is putting in place his ruler and the ruler's reign over the ruler's realm. Turn with me to Exodus 12. It's a familiar passage. The nation of Israel is in the land of Egypt. God is sending various plagues. His intent is to bring his people out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. A blood sacrifice is to be offered up in order to spare the firstborn. All of this is a shadow, a type. In Exodus 12, verse 13, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. All of this is foreshadowing the future deliverer and deliverance. And no plague will befall you, destroy you, when I strike the land of Egypt. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourself lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. Verse 22. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel in the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. Verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when He sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. Verse 27, You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Place yourself in that context. Remember that the story of Abraham offering up Isaac has been foretold for decades. For hundreds of years. They've heard the story of how God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. And here they are in Egypt. And God says in order to spare life, an innocent life must be offered Blood must be shed. It is in only that way that my wrath against the people will be satisfied. And they do it, and God passes by the homes that have blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. That language, and again, without wanting to release the tension that is for the people, consider First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. When Paul says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover. All of this is rich theology, but this is what the people were living with in Exodus. And this is the story they told of how God spared the nation and delivered them from Egyptian bondage. But how did He do it? Through blood. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Remember, there is still a lack of clarity as to who and when. But they know there is more to come. None of this is random. They know that God will provide a deliverer and deliverance. And God is acting. But there is still more to come. All of these are street signs that lead us to the city of God. Consider the book of Leviticus, and we won't turn to the book of Leviticus, but consider the book of Leviticus. God gave a temporal means to secure temporal atonement for the sins of His people. Fifteen times the word atonement is used in the book of Numbers, fifteen times. It is used seven times in Exodus. It is not used, the word atonement, in the books of Genesis or Deuteronomy. It is, however, used 43 times in Leviticus. The book of Leviticus lays down the manner in which sinful people are to approach God. The Hebrew word atonement is kippur. We know it as Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And it means expiation. It means removal. In the book of Leviticus, the first 16 chapters place emphasis on the five sacrifices. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering offering. Chapter 16 in the book of Leviticus concludes with Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. All of that is a type. All of that is a shadow. All of that is preparing the people for the future deliverer and the ultimate and final deliverance. But this is what they lived with. They understood from Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 that their efforts were limited. That they could never undo what was done. Then unless God acted, their shame, their guilt, their fear could never be removed. But an innocent animal was offered up in their place. Blood was shed and wrath was placated. It was diverted. And all of this was done as a type and a shadow in the book of Leviticus. We know that this was done daily, day in and day out. And they understood that more was still to come. We move all the way to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Please turn there with me. Isaiah 53, 700 years pass between the Exodus and Isaiah. 700 years. It doesn't process in our brain the time span that that covers, the events. But in all of this, the people continue to offer sacrifice. They continue to offer blood for the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah 53, I will read only verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. And again, 700 years have passed between Exodus 12 and Isaiah 53. And they read these words. And the prophet speaks. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Again, all of this we are prepared for. All of this is common and part of our existence. And here is what the prophet says. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. This deliverer, he will see it and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. John Wesley correctly notes and makes this comment concerning this passage. God was the principal cause. It pleased God to bruise his son's heel so that the head of the serpent would be crushed. God was the principal cause of all his sufferings, though men's sins were Were the deserving cause. When I read Isaiah 53 in its entirety, and particularly verses 10 and 11, I ask myself could any of us have penned these words? It pleased us to crush our offspring. Sometimes I think we think we can outthink God, that God is so plain that he is completely understandable. It is the mystery of the story that leaves me in sackcloth and ashes. We have a villain. This is God's response to the villain, the introduction of the hero. And the hero is foretold throughout the text from Genesis to Malachi. Turn with me now finally to Malachi, the last book before Matthew. Listen to what Malachi says. Malachi is the last of the writing prophets. He wrote in about 400 B.C. There will now be what is called the 400 years of silence. For 400 years, there is no written revelation from God. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is how the book of Malachi ends. This is is the last word from God for 400 years. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. From Genesis to Malachi, God has been speaking of a deliverer and deliverance. They are experiencing it in shadow, in type. They are living with an element of anticipation, of expectancy. And the last word they hear from God is that there will be The One comes, a forerunner will appear and prepare the way. Now, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We have studied this text already, but again, remember if you were a believer in the Old Testament prior to the coming of the One, you would be living with expectancy, you would be living with anticipation, you would be understanding that more was to come, that something fuller would be manifested. That the fullness of Genesis 3.15 would be played out. And you are living in light of that hope. And then in Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. We have these words written. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah and Malachi the prophet. Behold. I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And John preached, prepare ye the way of the Lord. If you were an Old Testament believer prior to the coming of Christ and you were living with that air of expectancy, you were wanting and looking for more and John appeared in the wilderness saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, your heart would burst with joy. But prior to that moment, they are living with this element of expectancy When Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler, the ruler left downcast and broken. As Jesus continued instructing his disciples, the following conversation ensued in Matthew 19, verses 23 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. And they said, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. For you can never undo what you've done. You can never put the genie back in the bottle. You will never be able to respond correctly to your fear, your shame, and your guilt. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God will bring the deliverer. In the story of God, the condition of man is bleak, beyond comprehension. But God, God will provide a way, an only way, and a way that He makes open. And all of this that we have noted this morning, these nine ideas, all of this prepares us for the coming, and it leaves us with a spirit of anticipation, of expectancy as we place ourselves into the story. As an Old Testament believer, we know in all of the shadows there is something more. If we were living in that period of time, we would know that in the shadow, in the type, there is something more. Something more is to come. Something more than what we have. We do, if we were back then, we would live contented, but we would still be yearning. We would live with unrest but promise. There is this restless faith, there is this uneasiness, there is something more, and we die in hope, having not yet attained the promise. We left last week understanding that the villain is present, that evil has happened, and that we are sinners, and there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to correct the problem. It cannot be undone by us. Today we have seen that God has introduced into the story the hero, the deliverer and deliverance. But up to this point, it's all in shadow. It's all in type. It's in prophecy. And we have unrest but hope. We have promise. And that's where we are left at this point in the story. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then it is our desire as a fellowship to tell you about Him. He is the answer to your question. He is the solution to your problem. Sin exists, but grace reigns because the cross still stands. It is my desire and us as a fellowship that we would enter into the Advent season, Advent coming the deliverer is coming God has prepared us our entire lives for this one moment when he appears and it is my prayer that we would enter into the advent season and that the holy spirit would place within us a yearning a yearning to see him come again let us pray Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to be called from various places in our daily life to this one place to gather and to hear the word, to fellowship with our fellow believers, to speak words of peace and encouragement, to extend touches that have the power to heal. Father, as we look at the story of Scripture, we know that the hero is coming. We know that the deliverer and deliverance is coming in its final form. And Father, may we live with that expectancy. May we live with that element of anticipation. Father, I pray for those who, during this Advent season, still do not know Jesus. They are still blinded. They are still in Adam. They are still trying to defend themselves with Adam's argument. God, there has to be a breaking. There has to be a crushing. It is not so much that we pray for this, but we know it is absolutely necessary for them to come to faith. And so I pray, God, that you would cause them to see how naked they are, how shameful they are, how fearful they are, and that all of their attempts are as filthy rags, and that they would see Jesus. May this be a time for them when they see Jesus in his coming for the very first time. And Father, may they believe in faith and take what you have provided already. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.